Allie. And I'm Sarah. And you're listening to Dead Cat on the Line, an internationally focused true crime podcast. Where two very anxious people overanalyze everything. Today has been a mild disaster already, so, you know, at least I feel like, you know those winsome heroines in, like, Hallmark movies who aren't allowed to have real flaws? So their yes. only flaw is that they're very awkward, and they're actually <laughs> a flaw when it actually is, and it's something you need to work on. That's been me today, so realised I had no tea-making facilities, and I realised that anybody who's, like, British who's listening will understand, like, what a big problem this is. Because I took my creamer to work, came back and realised I'd used it all up, and I hadn't bought replacements. I haven't been well the last week, because, as you can imagine, when a cold goes around a city with 13 million people, everyone catches it. Oh, yeah. Even though, and I know, like, this is not a new concept to literally any of our Asian listeners, I get that, but I'm white. I'm, like, very white, so this is very new to me. Like, the idea of, like, the cold and flea masks. Oh, yeah. The problem is, I have a weird tiny baby head. And (laughs) the adult masks are actually too big for me, so I have to buy the children's ones in order for them to fit. Which is great for me, because the children's ones have, like, really cute patterns on them. But it also means I am a 24-year-old woman with, like, teddy bears on my flea mask. (laughs) Respectable adults on the train. Into, on my commute are just looking at me like god why are foreigners such weirdos <laughs> why are they like this um but yeah so i had to run down to the vending machine and get some hot tea because they have it in cans here in japan and like activates and it's magical but on the way up i nearly ran into my attractive housemate who i'm not going to do identifying information of partially because they may listen, and partially because it now means anybody who does listen from my house can think of themselves as the attractive housemate. <laughs> um, and that's nice for you guys, and I want you to have that. And also a power move, because it uh, confirms <laughs> that they're all like, oh, am I attracted to Sarah? <laughs> am I attracted to Sarah? So if you are listening and you're from my, my house, the, the thing with bisexuality is quite a lot of people are attractive to me. objectively and aesthetically so i don't want to say you're not special but you're not special (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) anyway so i'm yeah so you ran into your neighbor nearly nearly did nearly did i had to like like sort of convert operation style a ss mission my way out of there because right now i'm dressed in the sort of outfit of somebody that had two very long shifts at work and then before that i's had a cold I also ran out of of cups in my apartment because I had a cold. To be fair, like I live in a tiny apartment. I have maybe three cups. So it's it's not as gross as it sounds, guys. I now have to wash them up and I'm in some sort of like denial. I mean, going through the stages of grief about having to go wash up. (laughs) I'm sure we'll get to bargaining soon enough. And then when I opened the curtains to finally let in some light, because over the course of our recording it went from like nice and dim and like early morning to it's now morning and you're just a gremlin and I realized that I've had washing the same washing hanging out to dry for the last four or five days and it was oh no and I'd I'd just forgotten about it it's like some sort of velveteen rabbit shit (laughs) 
that cardigan is out there like is there like sarah doesn't love me as much as she loves her other cardigans <laughs> I, I, I haven't brought it i haven't brought it in yet so it's just sort of looking at me now as a symbol of shame that's how that's how today is going so far how, how is your day going ali uh well for me it's already like 11 p.m so you know it's been a very long day already not nearly as eventful as yours has been <laughs> It's just kind of one of those average, like, Saturdays where I'm laying around in my house playing video games all day, got my cat. Yeah, he's currently, like, sniffing beneath the bottom of my bedroom door because I have some foster kittens right now. Oh, yes! Okay, for listeners, Ali has a cat called Artemis. I'm voting for him to be the show's mascot (laughs) because I love him. And he's never done anything wrong in his life. <laughs> and now that's debatable. <laughs> see, this, this is the difference between a cat lover and a cat owner, I think. <laughs> like, cat lovers are like, aren't you a sweet, precious angel baby? And cat owners are like, what the, what the hell did you just put in your mouth, you little bastard? Spit it out. <laughs> I regularly call him Stinky Boy now. I do that with my parents' dogs, and my parents get really offended. I call them <laughs> spoiled, and they are spoiled. Yeah. If anybody from my family is listening, they're spoiled. You all know I'm right. You are also in the stages of grief, but you've just yeah. never moved past denial. They get re- they get super offended. They're like, no, they're just well loved. I'm like, the thing is, I don't get why people get offended if you tell them their pet is spoiled because I'm like, what's the point of having a pet if you're not gonna spoil it? Like, I I absolutely decided when I get a cat, I'm going to spoil him rotten, and I will not be ashamed. Artemis is going to grow up to be a beautiful little brat, and I'm very excited. He's already a brat. He's well on his way. But to explain a little bit further for those of you who are listening, along with owning Artemis, I also volunteer with a local animal shelter as like one of the shelter volunteers and I also foster kittens. So I'll regularly have like two or three other cats in my apartment along with Artemis. And I recently got two new foster kittens who are very sweet and they're the same age as Artemis. It's a playdate. Yes, well they have to be supervised playdates because <laughs> They're not quite too sure that they like Artemis, whereas he wants to be best friends with them. Oh, no. Like, the first few days, he kind of hissed at them because they were in his space and he they were new. And then, like, after a few days, all he wanted to do was play with them. So he went from being not friendly at all to being so friendly that the other cats are scared and sometimes try to actually fight him when he's just trying to play with them. <laughs> they think it's some sort of like long game, like a long con. <laughs> <laughs> they must. But so he's currently hanging out in my bedroom with me because I can't supervise the three of them together while recording. Mm-hmm. And so he's just kind of sniffing at the gap underneath my door because these foster kittens are right outside of it and he's like trying to swipe at them from underneath the door still trying to play with them it's just like mom mom why can't i go out and play with the other kids mom (laughs) mom i'm bored i want to go play 
mom, if you loved me, you'd let me go play. I didn't love you enough that I'm keeping you from being swiped at by two kitties who think you're just trying to fight them. I think the difference between childhood and adulthood, both in like humans and other species, is kids immediately think that like, if you loved me, you would let me do this. And adults are like, because I love you, I'm not letting you do this. Absolutely. So real, so real. Anyway, I feel like I have picked a case, unfortunately, that is going to bring the mood down real quick. So, oh, oh boy. As as you (laughs) probably might start to notice over like the series drop, I've been trying to pick a lot more light hearted and or ones that can be more light hearted and more historical to sort of offset the sheer amount of deeply sad like very interesting but deeply sad cases that are coming out of like the u.s segment alley not naming names <laughs> hey, Ali. next time next time i'll do the lighter ones and you can do the dark sad ones thing is i don't i'm not very good at being dark and sad i tried it for a bit when i was about 17 <laughs> i was like i'm gonna be i'm gonna be like aloof and mysterious and i'm gonna be kind of tragic and it just didn't it didn't work it did, i don't think it, it didn't last very long no you are you are very obviously not that person based on like fashion makeup yes Mm -hmm. general overall personality Mm -hmm. yeah just yeah i feel like when you part of your hobby is you're like i thrift shop for ridiculous like poofy pink glittery clothes yeah (laughs) can't that makes it kind of hard to be aloof and yes dark and sad i have to admit it's very hard to be aloof when sometimes like little girls on the train like look at me and they're like oh my god mom it's a princess and i'm like (laughs) i am thank you thank you for noticing if only everybody else in my life would treat me with the same respect as you're doing right now (laughs) oh big mood big mood (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so i'm gonna very clunkily segue onto this case (laughs) because I don't think there's a smooth way to transition right now or if there is all of my tactical thinking was wasted for today on having to avoid the attractive housemate I'm still in like my I'm still in my pajamas and the pajamas mostly consist of a pair of very fluffy shorts (laughs) and a pink a pink fluffy bunny jacket it has actually like bunny ears on the hood and like those horrible, I love them, those horrible fake fur, like mule sandals. Yes. They're like my indoor shoes so for the house when I'm not in my room. So <laughs> inside. And there's like a rip in the fluffy shorts. And I was like, you know what? I can't. I can't. I can't. <laughs> not today. I'm not strong enough. My ego won't withstand it. Yeah. All that tactical, it's, it's gone on that, guys. So you're getting no brilliant conversational maneuvers today. I'm sorry. Maybe if you wanted those generally, I can recommend other podcasts. Yeah, I don't think you'll find those here, honestly. What was it we said in another episode? We were like, look, come with low expectations and then watch it. We just limbo. We're going to limbo under them. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, so, before we before we get into this case, just make sure to like grab your comfort items and... Mm-hmm. I have like a box of cookies I'm ready to chomp on. Yeah, I'm ready to stress eat. Yes. Valid <laughs> choice. So the case I decided to do is the case of Brady and Hindley, which is like very, very famous in the United Kingdom. 
this had a massive effect on both the United Kingdom's like crime and justice system and like wider media discussion. This one is actually taught as an example in when I back when I did my A levels, which for American people is the years between sixteen and eighteen, where you've you've already specialized at fourteen. You specialize again at sixteen and you pick three or four subjects that you will then use to apply to universities with, with those grades. And I picked sociology. And this is one of the cases that interested me in like the sociological side of true crime. Yeah. Because it's very commonly used within the UK because of its fame as an example of different ways of interpreting what we would call like paired serial killers. So usually as many people who listen to true crime know, when you have two serial killers, there's usually a dominant personality that is influencing the other personality. And in this one, there is massive debate as to who was the dominant personality. This also was a crime that was committed during a time. So one of them is a woman, and it was committed during a time where the women's liberation movement, in inverted commas, I, I feel really wary of saying women's lib because it makes me sound like some uncomfortable like right-wing person on reddit being like the women's lib <laughs> ruined ruined everything now women think they can have rights and be people uh, <laughs> we just i've just lost us about three listeners there goodbye farewell so long farewell avida say no i'm good i'm good i'm good i don't need to sing the rest of sound of music today later but maybe this, later but this is an example of a case where the media attention that was focused on the female perpetrator Mm -hmm. is very very vicious and i think rightfully vicious but it is done in such a way that because it's a woman who committed this crime it is seen as particularly heinous because of the ideas at the time about what women's relationship to other people in the world should be yeah and also i grew up nearby so i grew up in the northwest northwest represent represent (laughs) And this is in Yorkshire. So Lancashire is northwest, Yorkshire is northeast, and I believe so the Moors in north in Yorkshire play a very big part in this mm-hmm. crime. I don't know, this is gonna sound like a really stupid question, and I apologize, but this is a podcast where we ask stupid questions. Yes. Do you have Moors in America? Like the idea of the Moors? I wanna say yes, mm-hmm. but like we we wouldn't really call them Moors, I don't think. It's basically Heather Moorland is what it's called. And so Moorland, it's basically, um, it's very common in the UK. There's a lot in, so Dartmoor in southwest England is mm-hmm. a very famous one. Yeah. If you've ever read like anything by the Bronte sisters and you yes. hear about the people being lost on the Moors. So yeah, they usually occur according to the internet, in um, tropical Africa, northern Western Europe, and neotropical South America. Yeah, that makes sense. They're basically not the same as, but very, I would say, almost equivalent to, maybe I think the phrase in, like, the US is, like, plains, like, desert. There's long things of, like, brushland. Yeah, I think what we would think of as moors would be the plains and or wetlands. So these don't necessarily have wetlands. In Yorkshire, we have like heather moorlands, like the plant heather. Yeah. They are like very popular. They're actually very beautiful in like a very sparse way. Mm -hmm. Um, They're also very 
dangerous to go out on alone at times because they're very sparse. There is, if a wind picks up, there is not really anywhere you can hide from that wind. Oh, yeah. You're kind of stuck at that point. That means that people who are, can, you can die of exposure out on a moor if you get lost. If like wind picks up, because obviously like on flat land, when wind picks up, there's nothing to break the wind. Yeah. So it's just really, so yeah, people have died out on moors. Okay. Um, of natural, when I say like natural causes, they were not murdered on moors. They got lost and died. Yeah. Um, usually from hypothermia. Okay. So they're going to be a big setting in this. So I figured it was better to just explain what moors were rather than have some poor sweet listener like listening along and being like, what the hell is a moor? <laughs> Honestly, when you said more, I, I pictured wetlands. So having you explain it is yeah. clearing yeah. that up for me. Yeah, they're, they're not wetlands. Not the ones I'm thinking of in the UK. I wouldn't yeah. wetlands. Okay. Anyway, so let's go. And I grew up nearby and I actually passed through these moors like very frequently in order to visit like one of my best friends. I have to pass through them. And they're very, it's very eerie like in the context of this case. Yeah. Um, so like to start with, like I know that usually we introduce, like the convention is within true crime podcasts that we introduce the perpetrators first. And I can yeah. get why. But I wanted to start with like today, like I want to start with the names of the actual victims. So we have the first one, her name is Pauline Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was 16 when she died. Then there's John Kilbride. And he was 15 when he died. We have Keith Bennett who was 12 when he died. Oh. Um, we have Leslie Ann Downey, who was 10 when she died. Oh, um, God. And the last one, who is Edward Evans, who is 17 when he dies. So I wanted to have their names first, for mm-hmm. once, particularly in this case. When I go into it, you'll understand, but I think it's very important that we remember these literal children yeah. over the kind of infamy and press that surrounds these two killers. Yeah. So, like I said, this is going to be a heavy one, guys. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so let's start. So we have Ian Brady. He's mm. going to be born in 1938 in January, and he's born in Glasgow. His mum is unmarried. This is like a big deal at the time because it's 1938. Yeah. Particularly, like, I don't know about how it was in America, but in the UK, this was a very, very big deal at the time. No, it's still would have been a big deal in america as well so she works also works as a tea room waitress so i don't know if people know what a tea room is it's like a very the closest thing i can say it's like a very fancy cafe mm-hmm. where people go they're still we don't not every place has them but in a lot of older cities there will be a tea room which is populated mostly by older people people who've stumbled in by accident people who've come because it's cheap and mm-hmm. American tourists. So <laughs> the, the average populace of tea rooms nowadays. But yeah. the, we don't know who his father was. It's never really been confirmed. His mom, her name's Peggy, and she, she, she said that he was a reporter who's working for a Glasgow newspaper who died three months before Brady's born. So I don't know if that's true. I don't want to call this woman a liar because we don't know. Mm-hmm. But I will point out that for many unmarried women at the time a very common justification because society made them feel like they needed to justify it yeah was to say that either they had recently been widowed um to the point that some people would wear a wedding ring 
uh-huh. or that the husband-to-be or the partner had died before they could get married. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a lot about social censure and trying to make it as acceptable as it could be when this act was seen as unacceptable. Yes. So she gets next to no support because it's 1938 and there's very little in terms of state welfare and there's even less for an unmarried mother, single mother, because it's kind of seen that she's brought she's brought it on herself. It's like some Which real victim-blaming. bullshit. Yeah, it's real victim-blaming bullshit. So she's forced to give away Ian to a local couple called Mary and John Sloan. Mm-hmm. They already have four children of their own. His birth mother regularly visits. So we're now going to go into childhood. So various authors have suggested that he tortured animals as a child, which is, as we all know, is a big red flag. Big, yes. big red flag. Very big um, red flag. Well, Brady has always said that he didn't do this. He moves to an overspill estate at Pollock with his family. I don't know, again, if this is an American concept. An overspill estate is the original name for it. Yeah. Um, it's a housing estate that was built as part of a 1952 act because after the Second World War, because of the bombing in the UK, a lot of ha- traditional houses have been destroyed completely, yeah. particularly in major urban areas. And there was a housing crisis. So that's yeah. when a lot of um, housing estates, as we call them, were like were built yeah. as quickly as possible. And they yeah, we built- didn't. We don't have that in America, so because <laughs> we didn't experience that. It's supposed. They were supposed to be, and I will say like. There is a lot of, I think, rightful objection to this concept. They were part of what we would call slum clearance. So in urban areas, they were very overcrowded houses. So people were forcibly moved out yeah. into these, what we would call overspill estates. I really okay. don't like the name overspill estate. I feel like people aren't an overspill. Do you know what I mean? And they're usually on the outskirts of cities, which is why they're unpopular, because that increases your commute time, it increases the cost of getting to work, and it means you are often separated from family and friends. So yeah. it's not a particularly popular move. He's going to appear twice before um, a juvenile court for housebreaking before he turns 15. He's going to take a job at a shipyard. He's going to then work as a butcher's messenger boy. The only thing that I would say is of immediate and pressing interest is that he has a girlfriend. Her name's Everly Grant. their relationship is going to end because he's going to threaten her with a knife oh boy she visits a dance with another boy um, and he threatens her with a knife he's going to appear before court this is before his 17th birthday okay Um, and he's going to be placed on probation but he has to go live with his mother so his birth mother so by this point she's moved to manchester she's married a guy called patrick brady patrick brady is going to get Ian Brady a job and as you can see like Ian is now going to take his new stepfather's surname so he's gone from Ian Stewart to Ian Sloan to Ian Brady and I do wonder if that's why he might not have been as immediately flagged throughout his childhood as somebody that needed to be watched you know possibly because with the name changes like all the previous records would be less immediately accessible and he's moving around yeah. And he's living with different caregivers. Yeah. Like, mm. So he's going to go to Strangeways. I don't know if you know Strangeways Prison. It's a very famous prison in the UK for three months because he doesn't even make it a year after he moves to Manchester before he gets caught stealing. Oh, gosh. So he gets three months in there and he's still under 18. So he gets two years in Borstal 
it's called, it says for in inverted commas training. People can look up the concept from a borstal if they want to. It's basically a weird hybrid mix of a school and a mm-hmm. prison. Okay. Um, so he keeps getting moved around to these different ones. This is one point that I feel like is a slightly light moment and otherwise not very going to be a very light episode where, and I quote, after being discovered, so he's in Borstal, right? Yeah. He's literally in the school prison hybrid. Yes. After being discovered drunk on alcohol, he had brewed where is my question. Like in my notes, I've got like, <laughs> where? Where in this school prison hybrid have you found somewhere you can brew out? Because that takes time. It takes it time, takes time and like a lot of equipment. Yes. He was moved to the much tougher unit in Hull. I'm just like, oh, again, just where? Where did you? Like, were the people just blind? I don't know. I have questions. So many questions. Anyway. So at this point in the year is 1957 and he's going to be released. Okay. He goes back to Manchester. He's going to go through multiple jobs. How old is he at this point? At this point, so it's he's... So it's 1957 and he's born in 1938. So... Okay. See how bad I am at maths, guys. Let's have a look. So at this point, he is now... He's 19, right? He's 19. That's what I've got. So... At 21, he's going to apply for and offer a, cl- offered a clerical job at Millwards because he decides to, this is a very common phrase at this time, like in inverted commas, better himself. Okay. So he basically gets um, a bunch of instruction manuals on bookkeeping from a local library um, mm-hmm. and he studies alone. He gets the clerical job, which I think, I feel like we are sometimes very, and I understand why, are wary of describing serial killers as intelligent because it sounds like, we're complimenting them. But yeah. I think we need to point out, this guy is smart. Yes. He's very smart. He clearly is very opportunistic. Yes. And, and very enterprising. So he's going to... So Millwoods is a chemical distribution company. And he's going to... His colleagues are later going to say that he was very quiet. He was very punctual, but he had a really bad temper. This is just like a city of... A tent city of red flags. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it's like every everything you reveal about him that would be a red flag is just like one other huge blinking neon sign. Like, this is a bad apple right here. Yeah, it gets worse. So oh, he, used to read books, he used to read books a lot, including such titles as Teach Yourself German, which is pretty innocent, I will say. Like, mm-hmm. And Mein Kampf, which is not so innocent. Yeah. Aside for like the fact that it's a horrendous document, but it's important socially and historically, and I think tied together with everything else, that's not a great book that I want him to be reading. No. And also, what year did you say this was? This this is 1959. So this is recent. Recent Okay. Yeah. Because we're about to go into the 60s. Um, He also used to apparently like to read other works on Nazi atrocities. So. Great. Someone should have noticed that. Yeah. But he rode a motorcycle, so, you know, perfect boyfriend material. Am I right? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So that that's, that's Brady. We're going to have Myra Hindley. She's born in July 1942. She's raised in a working-class area of Manchester called Gorton. She has abusive parents. Her father's an alcoholic. They live in... A very crappy house. Like mm-hmm. 
Hindley and her parents slept in the only available room, so they had to put like a single bed next to her parents' double bed, and they all had to like sleep in that room because it was the only room that was in good enough condition. Oh, man. It's going to get worse because in 1946, so four years later, they have another kid called Maureen. Maureen is important. I'm not just like telling you this detail for color. Please remember Maureen. She's going to be very significant later on. Okay. So a year later, Hindley's parents clearly decide that, I don't know, maybe they just can't fit a cot in there. I'm not surprised they can't fit a cot in there. Do you know what I mean? Like, So they send her to live with her grandmother and she is, she's five at this point. Okay. So I say they both they both have like super disrupted childhoods. Yeah. I'm not using that as a justification because lots of people have justified, you know, disrupted childhoods. But it childhood. is something that plays into it. It can like make people far more it makes people more vulnerable. Yes. Um, the thing is, her dad, and I think this is something that happened very often at this period in the UK, had been in the Second World War. He'd been mm-hmm. in North Africa, Cyprus, and Italy which were very horrible places yeah. in terms of fighting. And he had been known within the army as a hard man, which, you okay. know, it's not, it's not good when the army thinks you're considered quite a hard guy. Yeah. <laughs> he taught her how to fight. He insisted that she always had to stick up for herself, despite the fact that he beat her. So the cognitive dissonance here. I mean, I guess he maybe could have justified it in that, like, he was He's teaching her to be Teaching tough. her, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely terrible. I genuinely think that's what he did. I think that's how he justified it to himself. Yeah. This is very common in the UK and a lot of histories of people who come back from the First and Second World War, obviously have PTSD through the roof and are yes. never treated for it. Yes. Um, and they're because of their mental health, they start to take it out on other people. I don't. That doesn't justify it, but it just means this was like a very common thing. So a very like uh, an example of in- incident. Um, so a local boy is gonna approach her in the street, and he like scratches her, and he draws blood. So she bursts into tears, and she runs into her parents' house, and her dad immediately tells her that she has to go out and punch the boy because if you don't, I'll leather you. So like as in like with a leather belt, I assume. Or leather you is like a phrase for beating because yeah. of the idea that you beat with people with a leather belt. Yeah. So he's like he's like you have to go out and fight this kid now, or else I'm gonna hurt you. That's a that's like a real tough place to be. Mm-hmm. So she goes out, she finds the boy, she basically goes through the punches her dad taught her, and she knocks this kid over. Do you want to guess how old she is at this point when this happens? Younger than 10? <laughs> yep. So as she wrote later, at eight years old, I'd, oh scored, boy. My first, I'd scored my first victory. She's eight. I was starting to think seven, so it's nice to know I'm not quite off the mark. And the reason I'm kind of going into all of this extra detail is that a professor of forensic psychiatry at Cardiff University called Malcolm McCulloch, he suggested that the fight, this particular incident, this fight, and the part that Hindley's father like played in it, it could be very key pieces of evidence in understanding Hindley's role in these later crimes. I can see how it would be. Because he points out, like, she's not only used to violence, this is a quote from him, like, she was not only used to violence in the home, but she's rewarded for it outside. Yeah, she was, like, taught to be violent. And she gets rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. And it's also a survival mechanism, because if she doesn't hurt other people, she'll get hurt. Yeah, um, I can see that. So the other thing that happens is, as a kid, she actually does have friends. One of them is called Michael Higgins. In June 1957, so for reference, she's born in 
42. Mm-hmm. So let's let's do the maths. She is at this point 15. Um, okay. He says to her, like, do you want to go out swimming in this a local disused reservoir? Okay. She's a good swimmer. She decides not to go. She goes out with another friend. But Higgins actually drowns. I don't know if he goes by himself, but he actually is going to drown when he goes. Oh, boy. And Hindley is going to be... Like, she basically blames herself for his death. Because she's like, if I... She was a good swimmer. So she's like, if I was there. Which isn't how this works. And I don't like the fact I feel sympathetic towards her, to be honest. like I mean, that's a, that's a pretty common mm-hmm. thought process, though, for people who are close to those who die before their time or from unnatural causes is just like the if I had been there or if I had done something what if I had talked to them at during this day or gone with them so it's it's not surprising that she felt that way and like a lot of people this is also like a very common phenomenon so he's um his funeral service is at say a church where she had actually been baptized years before and it was only because her father had insisted on it and her mum had agreed so that she could be baptized a catholic as long as she didn't get sent to a catholic school okay but the thing is that this church has a very big elastic effect on her she goes to what we would call a secondary modern so back when the uk had a three school system secondary modern was a non-academic and non technical or specialized school it was like a generic if you didn't get into the arts school and you didn't Mm -hmm. get into the grammar school you went to a secondary modern so like about most of the country went to one so she is going to convert but like she's going to fully be convert to the catholic church i mean she's already technically a catholic but she's going to fully become like a catholic which it's so strange when you look at her life and you see like this young woman who does like a very normal because a lot of people do convert to religion after a yeah, this. yeah definitely she is gonna go work as a clerk at an electrical engineering firm and i think what's also interesting is she was very well liked at the firm okay she's well liked enough so basically do you remember like when people had wage packets and it was that you had the money in there and you were given that yes like i know not personally but i mean like do you remember like that concept she loses, yes. that for, she loses her first week's worth of wages for it. The other women who work in the firm actually had a collection and privately raised the money to replace her wages. That's how well-liked she was. Oh my goodness. That's like, kind of like very different from Brady, who is yes. very quiet. Mm-hmm. Quiet. He's basically, to me, like Brady comes across as like a quiet widow who reads Nazi books. Yes. Like, and she was clearly quite well liked. She's gonna get engaged at seventeen. She's gonna call it off several months later. The guy he's called Ronnie Sinclair dodged a bullet. Truly yes. dodged a bullet there. Do we She's know gonna... a reason for her calling it off? Yes. She apparently thought he was immature and oh. quote. I mean, probably if he's about 18 or 19 he can't be much older right yeah he's probably probably immature like let's be real realistic yeah teenage boys are super immature sorry guys you are just it's okay sometimes it's just a fact and quote unable to provide her with the life she envisaged for herself yeah she's gonna she's actually gonna dye her hair pink straight after her 17th birthday well it's a pink rinse 
but do you know what I mean? Like, I think have you seen a pink rinse? It's it's pink. Yeah. She's gonna. I think what's also quite telling is she's gonna start taking judo lessons, but found partners reluctant to train with her as she was often <laughs> slow to release her grip. Now that is a red flag. To me, that's a red flag. Like, there's there's not a whole ton in her story like there is with Brady's that would stick out immediately as a red flag. That does. To me, I'm like, oof, oof. I don't like that. Just yeah. in the context of the fact we know that she's going to go on and become a murderer. I'm like, oh. yeah. So anyway, we're going to fast forward to 90. So we've got these two star-crossed lovers. Ugh. <laughs> and it's now 1961. She's 18. She's going to join his work. So Millwards, she's going to be a typist. Okay. And like in a previous, in like the Crippen episode, we talked about the fact that like typist was like a respectable job for a young woman at, for a lot of the 20th, 19th and 20th centuries that allowed you financial independence. Yeah. And like social independence. She began, she begins a diary, which apparently still exists to some degree. She goes on dates with the guys, etc. She's fascinated with Brady. Okay. Because I think personally, whenever I go to a new job, I'm like, oh, look at the, the tall, dark haired, quiet man with a motorcycle who reads Nazi books all the time. I mean, sure, if that's what you're into. In the context of this, I'm absolutely going to shame her for this one. This was like a goddamn bad choice. <laughs> a, a very bad choice. So she apparently is going to speak to him for the first time on the 27th of July. She's going to keep talking about him in this diary. So 27th of July, she speaks to him for the first time. She's already, like, gazing at him from afar. Mm -hmm. She's about to give up on him over the next couple of months. None of this is so close that this didn't happen. Do you know what I mean? That you're like... Yeah. Except for the 22nd of December, so the day after my birthday. Oh, Not great. I know, great. Um, Brady's going to ask her on a date to the cinema. Like, they watched a biblical epic called King of Kings. <laughs> That's not first date. I'm sorry, that's not first date material. <laughs> like, no, it's you know, not. And I feel like that's very ironic considering how they end up. I wonder, on a serious note, how much of it was about him trying to, if he was aware that she was clearly quite Catholic and was trying to appeal to that. Like, hey, I'm a decent guy. I'm not going to try anything. Why would I try anything if we're going to a biblical film? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. For that. But speculation, speculation. Please don't come after me like legal teams or whatever. Um, and so they're going to start dating and their dates together are basically going to follow the same sort of pattern. Like most people's dates follow a pattern, I feel. So they're going to go to a trip to the cinema, usually to watch like a, what we call like an X-rated film. They're then going to go back to Myra, so Hindley's house to drink German wine. I really, I don't feel comfortable with this obsession with Germany. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Not in the context of everything else. Like, yeah. Somebody that like lived in Germany. I love Germany. I don't feel comfortable with this. This in the context of it being an obsession with Nazis via Germany. No, that that is the part of Germany that is just deeply, deeply uncomfortable and disturbing. And I say this as someone who love was so fascinated with German culture that I actually took German as my language of choice in high school despite it not really being applicable the way that like Spanish is here Germany is great I I would love to visit Germany and like experience all that but I I'm right there with you as far as the like Nazi leanings of this case it's just very uncomfortable 
So Brady would then give her reading material because I love to take homework assignments from the guy I'm dating. Yeah, did he give her Mein Kampf? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, we're about to go. So so the thing is, the, the date thing kind of sounds relatively normal. It sounds like a relatively normal date. At the time, the X-rated thing was considered, like, very shocking. But I'm like, let's be realistic. That's quite a normal concept for, like, a first date for, like, early 20-somethings. <laughs> like, it's not that weird. Because that's what, it, like, R18 or, like, erotic or pornographic film, like, it's not as weird as people want to make it out to be. Yeah. Um, how do you think these two are going to spend their lunch breaks together? If I had to say, I would say, like, discussing whatever Brady had been reading. So close, so close. So, I don't know, Ali, how do you spend your lunch break? Uh, well, I spend my lunch break eating lunch with a big group of coworkers and trading funny stories and observations and griping about work. I spend my lunch break hiding from most of my coworkers. That's valid. And to be fair, like we don't usually have lunch breaks at a line, so that it works. Yeah. Out, but I go in, I go in, buy fancy coffee. Anyway, <laughs> so they spend their work lunch, the work lunch break reading aloud to one another. That's quite romantic, isn't it? Really. Oh, very, very. From accounts of Nazi atrocities. Oh, that that just really makes it romantic. I mean, nothing. There is nothing to me more personally satisfying in a relationship than having to spend my evenings taking homework assignments from this dude, and then I get to read about concentration camps at lunch. I yeah. hope it's an open, even better if it's an open plan office, so I can upset everyone. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. She's also gonna, going to start bleaching her hair blonde, which, given what we know about Aryan beauty ideals i was about to say like that that really fits in with the nazi ideals and she starts wearing like very bright red lipstick which at the time is for is 1961 like that's actually relatively scandalous like yeah we then have big the biggest red flag in the world which is she expressed concern at some aspects of brady's character i bloody bet she did i really hope she did it, it gets worse in a letter to a childhood friend, she mentioned an incident where she had been drugged by Brady. Oh, shit. That's all I could find on that from, like, Wikipedia. That was like, bam, like, that's it. No information on, like, what kind of drug or what happened or anything? So, because it's from a book from 1998 by a guy called Richie, and I have, I'm going to be honest, I did not. Or a person called Richie, rather, I don't know. Oh, it's a woman. My bad. Sorry. Sorry, Richie. <laughs> Richie. Um, and I wasn't going to read a whole book. I'm sorry. I wasn't really going to read a whole book about this woman. I wasn't. Yeah. I didn't want to do that to myself. I, I case, think that's totally valid. That's fine. She asks her friend to destroy the letter a few months later, which makes me think this happened. Like, it abs- there's something about the fact she asks for the destruction of it. And I think there's, I'm going to have like a quote from her, not from this letter, but from she wrote a plea for her parole. It was 30,000 words. Jesus. She wrote it over like two years. And this quote is, I, this one is like, it's, if it's true, it's sad. But a lot of people don't know if this is like a ploy, like a deliberate ploy. Mm-hmm. So within months, um, Brady had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat 
The moon was made of green cheese and the sun rose in the west and I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion. I can see why you say that would be really sad if it was true. The thing is, after they get arrested, they are both going to start claiming lesser responsibility. Yeah. Start playing it, playing off each other immediately, which is why I'm like, if it's true, it's really sad. But I don't know. She's also going to start wearing dun dun dun, risque clothing. What do you think is risky clothing? Risque clothing for um, 1961. Skirts are above the knee. <laughs> oh yeah, number one is short skirts. She also wore leather jackets. Oh, I I guess I'm considered risque now too. Get the get thee to a nunnery. <laughs> and last one is high boots. I am now definitely risque. I need to go to church and mend my ways. Well, I would try going to church to mend my ways, but I have a horrible feeling that lightning will strike the second I enter. I'm not I'm maybe I mean Maybe not, maybe not, but I'm not, maybe I don't want to find out. Do you know what I mean? Maybe, yeah. maybe I can about that. Yeah. Um, they're also going to become a lot more antisocial, which is like textbook. They are, they are committed, committed local citizens to their local library. Do you want to guess what kind of books they're going to borrow? Nazi books? Yes, sort of. They're going to borrow books on philosophy, as well as oh, crime oh. and torture. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. So some examples, we've got Nietzsche. Which, okay, like, Nietzsche is such peak 20-something. I've dyed my hair, got a boyfriend with a motorcycle, and I've got a short skirt. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it's like, still that it. way, honestly. It's, it's trying so hard. It's trying so, so hard. Deutschstofieski? That's Deutschstofieski? Right, yes, thank you. So Crime and Punishment. They're going to read Crime and Punishment. Yeah, Dostoevsky. Yeah, and the Marquis de Sade. So basically the guy who, you know the word sadism? comes from like Marquis de Sade goes or Marquis de Sade he wrote a bunch of books about which are basically like very sadistic pornography okay um, yeah I see where that she's not a qualified she's not really a qualified driver until 1963 so Hindley isn't but she's gonna hire a van anyway okay it's, it's the 1960s and apparently people don't check <laughs> like, yeah apparently <laughs> hey do you want to borrow a van of course you can clearly drive so they're going to plan some bank robberies. So for reference, people like, the UK is very, very difficult to own a gun. It's incredibly yeah. difficult. Almost impossible to own one privately. If you are a member of a rifle club and you do it as a sport, you are allowed to have one, I think. Okay. And for reference, is this is before the gun crackdowns time because we had a shooting event and then there were immediately very serious crackdowns on guns. So this um, would be a lot easier. This would be a lot easier. But guess who she's going to befriend? Who? She's going to befriend the president of a local rifle club. Of course. They're going to visit some local shooting ranges together. Mm -hmm. Okay, I I really apologize because I understand this is like a completely different cultural thing, but like nothing about visiting a shooting range to me is like a date activity. And maybe that's cultural. Possibly because... My parents have definitely gone to the <laughs> shooting range. I was like, and I'm sure your parents are lovely people. <laughs> yeah. To be completely fair, it's not like a regular thing for my family at oh, all. Yeah. And, and like the shooting range we went to is one of those really fancy ones. I went with my parents one time. Oh, yeah. Um, I get it. But yeah. But in the context of everything else. It's, it's very bad. Yeah. 
And also in a country where we don't have any sort of really cultural thing around guns, we don't have a constitution that gives us the the right to carry a firearm or a weapon. It's weird. This is my favorite part. The president, his name is Clitheroe, George Clitheroe. Although, quote, puzzled by her interest, because she's a woman. It's nice yeah. to be a woman. He still arranges to get her a gun. So they're like, they become friends with a guy who runs a, shoot, a rifle club who therefore has permission to buy guns, is what yeah. I should guess from this. Because I don't know historical gun laws. So he's going to go buy her a point twenty two rifle. Despite not knowing why she's interested. Yes. I wonder, and this is a serious thing, I actually have a drive thing I can show you with photos of them. The mugshot is not particularly attractive because no mugshots are, but I can see how she probably for the time was considered at least interesting to look mm-hmm. at. Like she has this like very fake looking dyed blonde hair, this bright red lipstick and these very like we said like risque outfits. I wonder how much she fl- and this is not like this is for reference, I want to make it clear, this is not slut shaming. I wonder how much she flirted and used the idea of I'm a little I'm a poor little woman to get what she wanted. Because I just, I don't know. I don't know why you would buy someone a gun if you weren't sure what they were going to use it for. Absolutely. I agree with you. Um, she's also going to try and join a pistol club. Try. She's going to try. Try is the operative word because she's a poor shot and she's very allegedly often bad tempered. So, yeah. so Clitheroe is like, I don't think you're suitable. So he won't let her join that. But she gets to the other members of the club and she manages to buy a 45 and a 38. So for people who gun names mean something like a Webley 45, a Smith and Wesson 38. Their plans to rob a bank, because it's clearly what this is all actually leading up to. They were planning to start off by bank robberies. Yeah. It doesn't happen. They never do bank robberies. Um, they're going to get into photography instead, which is a is a nice hobby, really. Yeah. Uh, big change from bank big, robberies. Big change. Um, they are taking um, explicit photographs for the time, which for the time is like practically satanic. <laughs> yeah let's let's be let's be realistic um, yeah but yes and so now we're gonna get up to the period before i'm sorry this one is very long this is a very very long case <laughs> uh, so we're about to get up to the period before the murder so we're now we're 1963 so for reference like this has all happened within the space of about because doesn't she she joins in what year did I say she joined in? Let me find. She joins that work in 1961. If they've been up together, not even a year, a year. Yeah. They start dating at the end of 1961. Um, so they're about a year and a bit. So Brady's going to start talking about Hindley about like the idea of committing what he calls the perfect murder. Big, like, I, I cannot explain how many... Such a, are. yeah, such a big I, red flag. Like, Giant neon sign. I could make a goddamn Oscar, you know, Oscar award ceremony ball gown out of all these red flags at this point. Yeah. And I think in my notes it actually says like big yikes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I still stand by that. He's also (laughs) gonna keep talking about there's basically an adaptation of a book called Compulsion by Mayor Levin. Lewin Levin which was released in 1959. He watches it and he becomes obsessed. This film is about, do you know the Leopold and Loeb case? I don't think I do. 
it's basically a fictionalized version of the Leopold Lowe case, where you get these two wealthy young men who, depending on interpretations, were either in a relationship together, or one of them was at least very sexually interested in the other one, who were also influenced by Nazi ideas of the idea of the superhuman. They believed yeah. they were the they they believed they they were the examples of being the superhuman. Of um, course. So they. And they randomly kidnapped a 12-year-old called Bobby Franks and murdered him. Okay. This is like a big, big case. It's like the first, one of the very first big media of random kidnapping. And it caused like a moral crisis, a moral and social crisis, because people realised that you didn't have to, almost like you didn't have to do anything to become a victim. You could just be deeply unlucky, which is what most, like all victims of crime are just deeply unlucky, in my opinion. <laughs> I think I do know this case. I think I've heard of this. Because they're going to escape the death penalty because of the age, first of all. Yeah, yeah. And partially because their lawyer, and I can't remember his name, but I think he's quite a famous lawyer in the US, is going to talk for nine hours in his closing argument about the death penalty. So he doesn't say his argument is not that they shouldn't be punished. It's that the death penalty is... Oh, no, 12. Sorry, I'm like, it was 12 hours. 12 hours. Um, basically criticizing the idea of the death penalty as a form of retribution and rather than it's not justice, it's just revenge. Yeah. He talks for 12 hours. Apparently it was like a life-changing speech. I personally think the jury were probably bored to death and wanted to go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, so um, they get life. So basically they got the very famous sense, which is life in 99 years. That's like and, two life imprisonments, basically. Yes, basically two life imprisonments. I know about this case because there is a musical, because of course there is. There's a, oh, a of course. There's an off-Broadway musical that was released in 2005 called Thrill Me, and I once went on a date to that musical. Oh! I mean, it's a very, it's a very good musical. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's very, it's deliberately very, it's uncomfortable. Like, it's not like a happy, you know, a happy clappy... Yeah, let's enjoy this. Like the ending, you walk out of there and you're like, "My God, what did I just watch?" And it's actually about the way that we we use crime as, as entertainment. It's okay, like, well, that's a little bit better. I can I can respect that. Yeah, you're gonna want to remember the details of this. Basically, they actually kidnapped him using a car, I believe. So they're gonna kid so the twelve year old. They kidnap and they pick them at random. By the way, Brady has now moved in with Hinley because they still she still lives at her grandmother's house. Okay. Brady now lives there, and I just like poor grandmother. Can you imagine living with this dude? Yeah. I know it's a little bit of a sideline, a lot of these like events and inspirations, but this case is so long because it really did, it completely shocked the entire country. Yeah. And so we have so much information because people scrambled desperately yeah. to try and figure out what would cause this. And also we're going to see that they are basically going to be... They, once they're in prison, they're not going to shut up. Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately for us all. Unfortunately for me. I think I've run out of tea. Oh, no, I haven't. I haven't. It's okay. So I won't die of thirst, at least. Good. So, it's 1963 right now, mm -hmm. okay? Okay. For reference, Hinley is... She is 21 at this point. Okay. And I think Brady is about 23 maybe 24, okay. they are our age and younger. Actually, yeah. you're, 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 you're older, aren't you? You're an old lady, so they're actually younger <laughs> than you. Yeah, um, I'll be 25 soon, so yeah. And I think I might be a little bit older than Brady. 
So we're going to get some reference. He starts talking about this in July in 1953. Okay. How long do you reckon it takes him to them to commit their first murder if he starts talking about it in July? I'm going to guess around three months? Nope. Twelve days. He's very persuasive, it seems. Apparently. Because on the 12th of July, we're going to, they're going to murder their first victim, who is Pauline Reed. She's 16 years old. She gets picked almost at random, but she had attended school with Hindley's younger sister, Maureen, and had been in a short relationship with a boy called David Smith, who has three convictions for minor crimes. So, like I said, we need to remember Maureen, and we need to remember David Smith. And there's a lot of moving parts, and I know he's just been introduced. Okay. But David Smith is going to be very important later. Yeah. Because he's also going to be questioned by police about Pauline. Um, I mean, considering his background, I would expect that. Um, And he gets cleared for reference. Like, he is not involved in that. But he is going to become significant later on. Okay. The way that they... So Pauline was actually on her way to a dance, which is, like, really sad. So she's probably, like, dressed up nice and is excited about the evening. Yeah. Brady has basically told Hindley that the plan is he's going to... She's going to drive her van around and he's going to follow behind on his motorcycle. And if he spots, like, a victim that he thinks looks like a good choice, he's going to flash his headlight and she's going to stop and offer the person a lift. And you wouldn't even think about, on a road, a motorcycle following a van. Do you know what I mean? Because you wouldn't assume they were connected. Yeah. So they're literally just doing this. They're driving around at random. And this is in their area as well. Brady's going to see a young girl. Brady does pick one potential victim and Hindley ignores him. She won't stop until the girl's already out of sight. And Brady pulls up alongside the bike and he's he's pretty pissed off. She points out that the girl is actually a neighbour of Hindley's mother. Okay. So she's like, we, we can't, her name was Marie Rook, and they were like, we can't pick her because it will, it's too close to home. But apparently, being in the area that presumably she grew up in was still, was not too close. <sighs> like, the cognitive dissonance is staggering. It's like that thing of, like, where they are clearly smart, but not smart enough. Yeah. And I always feel like, can you imagine this coming out years at the trial and being that girl and realising how close you came to this fate? Honestly, that would be traumatizing to me. Yeah, that would fuck me right up. That would really... And the fact it's just chance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I would be afraid to walk anywhere after that by myself. They're going to keep going. They're going to spot a girl. And you know the fact that I said that she's probably dressed up nice? Yeah. Probably why they noticed her, because it's like 8pm, and she's wearing like this pale blue coat and white high heels. Yeah, the high no heels control. probably mm-hmm. didn't help her at all. And again, like we sh- I should point out, we're not victim blaming here. We're saying like this is sh- they would have picked anyone. The fact that she's dressed up so nicely that uh, that will have attracted everyone's attention because she will. She sounds like she would have looked really nice. And I feel like the the high heels. They probably would have thought that she couldn't like run too quickly or too far in high heels. And no, I hadn't. I hadn't even thought of that. That's yeah, really sad. And so she recognizes the girl, but this time she decides that killing her younger sister's friend isn't too bad. Apparently that one's not close. Or I wonder if we have to believe her story about the fact that she's being controlled by Brady to an extent. Maybe she's too scared to say no a second time. Maybe. I mean, Um, how close was she to her younger sister, too? Not close, as we'll find out. She's She's not that close at this point. The story that they give Pauline is that 
Hindley has lost a very expensive glove on Saddleworth Moor, and Pauline, God love her, again, because it's a woman that I assume she might know of, but she, she knows at least this woman's sister. Yeah. She's like, you know what, okay, I'm not in a big hurry. Because I actually have pictures, and I think that was a good time for you to see maybe the area where we are going to find three of the, where the three of the victims' bodies are going to be found. Okay. So you can just sort of see what a deeply, deeply bleak place this is. Yeah. There's one that says area where three victims found. Oh, yeah. That's very bleak. Yeah. See what I mean about how you could very easily die of exposure. Yes. Yes, I do see that. So she's going to go help. Hindley's apparent justification is that because she knows Pauline's 16 and she thinks, oh my god, apparently Marie was 7 or 8. Well, I'd forgotten that in the time since I did this research and slept. So Marie was about 7 or 8 and they thought she thought there would be less of a fuss over a 16-year-old. Which again is one of the grossest things I think I've heard in a long time. Yeah. Nobody will care about a 16-year-old. And yeah. Like, nope, that's, that's very much still a person. So Brady's going to turn up when they stop on this moor. Mm-hmm. She's actually going to introduce him to Paul and be like, this is my boyfriend. He's come to help find the glove. This has got to feel weird at this point to me. And this, again, is not remotely like saying that Pauline deserved this because she absolutely didn't. This is the point at which I would start to feel uncomfortable. But where do you go on a moor where they can see anywhere you can run? So Hindley... And Brady are going to have different stories about what happens later, I believe. And Hindley's one is that Brady is going to take Pauline out onto the moor and Hindley's going to wait in the van. Okay. Again, so to me, I don't know how willingly Pauline went at that point. Yeah. But again, this is a moor. You know what I mean? She's, there's nowhere she can go, even if she tries. Yeah. To and they have a van. And Brady's going to come back in about half an hour. And he's then going to take Hinley to the spot where Pauline is. And she's actually, she's dying at this point. She's not dead. She is dying. Oh, boy. Um, so her throat's been cut twice. And I will point out this detail, and I don't like it, but this is publicly available. One of these wounds is a very deliberate, we think, um, cut across her voice box. Oh, yeah. So that she presumably couldn't scream for help. And the collar of her coat has been pushed into the wound, which is what makes me think that happened before any any other part of the attack began. Yeah. From what Hindley assumes from the time and from the state of Pauline's clothes, that Brady has sexually assaulted her. Um, Brady is going to tell Hindley to stay with Pauline whilst he fetches a spade that he's apparently actually hidden on a previous visit to the moor, somewhere on the moor. Which, like, the detail of going and deliberately planting a spade is also one that really sticks out to me. Yeah. And, like, in my notes, I say, like, the thing that I always think about with this particular, like, young woman is, first of all, I have been on these type of moors. They're really cold at night. And it will have gotten dark. And she's sat there with, I assume, eventually the dead body, but the dying body of a 16-year-old girl. Yeah. Just that mental image, I think, is always is going to has, has haunted me ever since I learned about this case. So now I guess all of the rest of you are going to have that too. So sharing uh, is caring. That's horrible, man. Brady's account is going to be different. He's going to claim that Hindley was there at the scene 
and that she helped him with the sexual assault. So do you see what I mean about them both having different... He's going to claim that she's a partner and she's going to mitigate. Yeah. Um, Thing is, there is motivation later on in her life for her to want to try and mitigate, aside from the obvious. Mm Mm-hmm. I just want you to know, would you like to hear, because this is not this, this is not the worst detail in the world about this particular one. Would you like to hear the worst? You don't want to hear it, but w- would you like to hear the worst detail in the world? Um, uh, they're going to, okay. on the way back, yeah, they're going to return home. Yeah. So they put the motorcycle in the back, they return home. They are going to pass both Pauline's mum and Pauline's, I think, her brother, who are oh, looking no. for her. Which is honestly one of the worst things. I hate this. I hate this so much. It's literally, I hate it. You're right, I hate this detail so much. So for reference, for the second victim, I will explain what is going to become their MO. And then after that, I'm going to just tell you if it matched the MO or not. Okay. Because we now have, this is 23rd of November. So for reference, we have the July, and then we have November of the same year. Okay. Um, This guy, this young man, his name is John Kilbride and he is 12. They're going to approach him at a market in Ashton-Underline, and they're going to offer him a lift home. So you see, like, the way they get people into their car shifts. Yeah. But the MO is going to roughly stay the same. And their their pretext is going to be that his parents are going to be worried about him being out so late. They also offer him a bottle of sherry if he'll get in the car. Oh, no. Kid. I know, and he's like twelve, and like the sad thing is, like sherry isn't that good of a drink. But when you're twelve, it's probably kind of all cool and adult and exciting. It's called a couple, because again, like if you have a look in the drive, that is their mugshot, and I realize they look incredibly unattractive, and there's something wrong with their eyes, and knowing that there's something off with them. But if you saw that couple come up to you at the time, that was like a very trendy young couple in their twenties. Yeah, offering you sherry and a lift and one of them has a motorcycle and you'd probably go with it and that's the really sad thing yeah he's going to get in the car that they've hired because of course they've hired a car they're also going to say that the, the sherry's at their home so of course yeah they're going to have to go home and on the way they're going to detour to the moor and they're going to claim that Hindley lost they're going to do the glove trick again basically okay um, Hindley is going to claim that she waited in the car again so same mo basically it's the sexual assault it's this time it's an attempt to cut this boy's throat and they then are going to that doesn't work and so they're now going to move on to what will become their new mo which is they strangle him with a piece of string and it's possibly a shoelace oh and the reason no I think that is because it's whatever do you have on you at that point yeah hindley is going to hire vehicles twice in the following weeks to go out and check the burial sites and check that nobody's disturbed them and nobody's found them. Oh, boy. Um, but Happy New Year, it's 1964. And in February, she's actually going to buy a new car and then she's then going to trade that in for a minivan. So I think the fact they're switching cars as well. But this is causing... So now we go on to 1964. So there are two victims in 1963. In 1964, we're going to have Keith Bennett, who is also 12. Keith Bennett is notable in the fact that Keith Bennett is one of the victims whose body has never been found. And so I he's hate very, this. He's very often in the media. He's gonna. He's actually on his way to his grandma's house, and it was four days after his birthday. I um, hate this so it's much. Really, it's, it's really... I'm sorry, this is a really horrible case. Oh. Um, so um, 
they ask for his help in loading some boxes and then they'll drive him home. They do the the lost glove trick again. The same MO, the same thing of hiding the spade. The really sad thing about Keith Benner is a couple of things. And first of all, his stepfather is going to become a subject a suspect in his stepson's murder. Oh no. Um, and for two years he's suspected of having killed Keith. Um, oh no. He's brought into the he's brought in and questioned four times in two years. Oh, four God. They're gonna they rip up the floorboards of this family's house. Yeah. Um, they discover you know how I said I I told you I think in another episode about the way that terraced houses work in the UK and how many of these houses are actually connected. Yeah. They are gonna rip up all the boards in the entire street. Oh god. And for me that's actually really one of the like in a very depressing and sad case that's one of the saddest things about this the fact that this guy spends two years being accused of a crime he didn't commit honestly that would just like ruin his entire life Mm -hmm. and the fact that they the police really are trying do you know what i mean like you don't the amount of money and manpower it takes to rip up the floorboards of an entire street yeah we have a general idea of the area where we think he's located on the drive, there is a place called Hograin. So this is the area that we know he's buried in, but we don't know the exact location. Okay. We know it's somewhere there. So yes. Then we're going to go to just two days after Christmas Day, so 26th of December. This is Boxing Day in England. This is a national holiday. Yeah. Often. This is when we're going to get the next victim. This is the 10-year-old. So oh. her, name is, her name is Leslie Ann Downey. Hindley is actually going to leave. Okay, so you know she. I remember she lives with her grandmother. So Hindley, yeah. Brady, and grandmother. She's actually going to ditch her grandmother. She's going to take her to a relative's house and not let her back to the house that night. Okay. Which again, super suspicious. Yeah. Uh, they actually deliberately go looking for a victim and they go to a fairground. Okay. So it's like a, like a, I imagine it's like a little Christmas fair type thing. Yeah. They're gonna figure out that this girl is on her own. They're gonna pretend to drop some shopping bags to get her attention. And they're going to do the same thing. Can you help us carry these things? This one, the MO is slightly different. She is going to be raped and killed inside the house. There are going to be photographs of her that she was forced to have taken. That's Um, sick. Yeah. This victim is also, this is a detail that I want to bring up because it's very important in the trial. But this is the victim that they actually recorded on a cassette tape torturing. Oh no. She's gonna so Hindley apparently is always gonna say that she went to go fill a bath for Leslie and found her dead when she came back. But have you noticed how like Hindley's case is really convenient that she just always happens to not be there? Yeah. She's always she's always just looking out. She's the lookout in the car or he comes back and she doesn't know anything about it. Yeah. And I'm like, mmm. First whereas Brady's gonna stay, it's Hindley. That's, that kills Leslie. Mm-hmm. They're gonna next day. They're gonna take her body to the moor. They're gonna bury her. There's not really much more to say about this one. Um, yeah. And then on the sixth of October, nineteen sixty-five. So there's a big gap between if you think twenty-sixth um, of December, nineteen sixty-four, and just under two months, under a year later. Yeah. Um, they're gonna take their. Fi- they're gonna kill their final victim. This is the final one. They are about to get caught, guys. I promise. If you're still listening, they are about to get caught. <laughs> Thank God for that. Like, and there will be no, they will be caught in such a way that there is no chance of them being able to talk their way out of this. 
good. So his name is Edward Evans, and he is 17. The reason this one is going to be the one that absolutely like has them got is that it's actually witnessed by, remember David Smith? Yes. David Smith married Maureen, Hindley's younger sister. Okay. Okay, and he's going to see the attack on Edward Evans. Okay. He's 17 at the time. David Smith is 17. The Hindley family didn't like Maureen's marriage to Smith because he had a lot of criminal convictions, the yeah. first of which was from when he was 11. And they'd been married when Maureen was seven months pregnant. And as oh. you can imagine, it's, it's the 1960s. It's actually a big scandal. Yeah. This is one of the things that makes me really angry in this case is Hindley disapproved and none of Maureen's relatives, including her sister, attended the wedding because, and my notes say, Myra Hindley's a goddamn hypocrite who draws the line at pregnancy, but not at murder. <laughs> <laughs> you can see where these notes I'm starting to get, just, I'm really done. I've had enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and because they're, they're married in 1964, so there, was a, there is most, all but one of their victims has been murdered by this point. Yeah. And throughout the previous year, Again, from what we can see about Brady, he does this thing where he cultivates relationships with people. Mm-hmm. He's been doing that with Smith, who has become like, hero, who basically hero worships Ian Brady. Which, because if you think about it, I know that he's an absolute monster, and we're looking at him with the hindsight of him being a monster. But to most of the people, he was clearly quiet and quite charming and older. And like, I know I keep going back to the motorcycle, but he had a motorcycle, and that was really cool. Yeah. And this kid is, this because this, he's a kid, I know he's married, but he's a kid. David Smith is 17, and he's 16 when Brady starts paying attention to him. Yeah, I feel like that's like, um, Brady's like grooming him a little. Yeah, I would agree. And the thing is, I will just put a disclosure that I, at that age, had friends in their early 20s who were very good. They basically became surrogate older sisters. They were very supportive. And I was in absolute awe of them. Like, I absolutely hero worshipped the ground they walked on. So this is why this part is so, like, personally painful to me, because I have been in a relationship that was very respectful, that cared about me as a younger person. Yeah. Uh, my boundaries, and was very caring. And yeah. And see how your older friend is always so cool. Yeah. So the fact that Brady did this deliberately to me is, like, monstrous. I agree. I know everything, I know everything else he's done is... I'm not trying to say it's, like, worse... Because everything he's done so far is absolutely disgusting. Even if it happened separately on its own and yes. he did nothing else, it would still be monstrous. Yes, exactly. Thing is, Hinley is worried about this friendship because she feels like it's going to compromise their safety. And in my notes, I'm like, she is right. She's, she's completely correct. So they're going to pick a victim at Manchester Central Railway Station. Which, like, I have been to Manchester so many times. It's a big station. I don't know if they have Manchester... Serious question, I don't remember if they have Manchester Central anymore. Mm-hmm. They now have, like, three or four separate stations because Manchester's so big. But yeah. at the time, they had, like, this one big central one. She's going to wait outside in the car. Literally, again, she's always waiting in the goddamn car. So it's so convenient. It makes me my, my, my blood boil. He's going to introduce Hindley. So when Brady comes back with Edward Evans, he's actually going to introduce Hindley as his sister. Okay. Brady's going to then send... So they're going to go back home with this... Edward Evans, who again, like we said, Brady's very clearly very good at charming younger men because mm-hmm. he's older and cooler. Into yeah. like I want to, and the, the flattery of I want to be your friend. 
mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm like twenty something, and I think you're cool enough to hang out with. I should point out, like again, in a lot of dynamics, I'm aware it's not like that in an actual like help, like respectful and like mutually respectful dynamic. This is often a red flag. And they're going to go home. They're going to drink a bottle of wine. Brady is then going to send Hindley to fetch her brother-in-law. So they're going to get back to the house. Hindley's going to tell Smith. Again, David Smith is 17. So he's the same age as the victim. Yeah. He's going to wait outside for her signal, which is a flashing light. And I don't think she explains why. Signals come. Smith knocks on the door. Brady asks, like, if he's come for, like, you know, like, have you come for the miniature wine bottles? It's meant to be, like, a code, and it's not clever. So Brady is going to lead Smith into the kitchen and leave him there and claim he's going to go collect the wine. And a few minutes later, David Smith is going to hear a scream followed and Hindley is going to repeatedly shout for him to come and help. Because he is an actual human being with an ounce of humanity, he is obviously going to go when his sister-in-law is screaming for help. Yeah. He's going to enter the room to repeatedly find, like, Edward is going to be being repeatedly struck with the flat of an axe. Oh, my God. He's then going to have to watch as Edward, sorry, Edward is throttled with um, some electrical cord. Oh my God. I don't know what they thought they got out of this. I don't know if they wanted someone else in their little murder circle, because I don't think Hindley wanted it. I agree. I don't think she wanted it, but I'm, I'm thinking Brady did. Yeah, I'm thinking Brady did. I'm um, thinking he saw something in Smith and he liked having Smith look up to him. And he wanted to bring Smith into it. Yeah, that's what my thing is. And I don't think she agreed, but I think this was under, this part was under duress. I would believe that if she says this is under duress. Yeah. Important detail is Edward Evans' body is going to be too heavy for Smith to carry to the car on his own. Because they were going to have the 17-year-old carry it to the car. Oh my god. And Brady has sprained his ankle in the struggle. So, like, it's very important that the body doesn't go to the car immediately. Yeah. So I can say... Edward Evans and his family is like, thank Christ he thought back because he basically is going to now take down his murderer with him. Yeah. So they're basically going to wrap it in plastic sheeting and put it in the spare bedroom because I personally like to put in the spare bedroom (laughs) things that, you know, that I don't need, that I kind of need. You know, I I don't know if you have like a spare bedroom in your house or you've had one, but you know, you Mm -hmm. put it in, you put the stuff you kind of don't need in there like her body, I feel like they're reasonably convinced they're not getting guests anytime soon. I would assume, and I guess they believe that Smith wouldn't say anything. Exactly. So I feel like the situation you're in now, like David Smith is effectively also a hostage. You've just seen somebody, you've just seen this guy you admire kill someone the same age as you, and you now feel complicit. And I now wonder, because basically David Smith agrees to meet Brady the following evening to dispose of Evans' body. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is very smart tactics. Because in a hostage situation, because that's it is what this effectively is at this point, mm-hmm. he's in fear of his life. You have to, the people who survive, like statistics show, are people who are compliant. They yeah. try and stand out. They try, they make people believe they're going along with what they're saying. Yeah. So I wonder how much of this based on his next behavior was him saying whatever he had to to get the hell out of her oh probably a lot of it if not all of it and i want to emphasize this because david smith is going to be criticized for the rest of his life he's going to go home he's going to tell his wife maureen exactly what he's seen because he's not an idiot and he's probably also got them traumatized yeah insists that they call the police 
which at the time, obviously you had to do from a nearby phone box. Yeah. And they say that they actually took a knife and a screwdriver with them in case Brady came after them. Good. Which which is good, but also tells you, first of all, how scared they were. And can you imagine how scary that is, walking in the dark to a phone box? You potentially have to walk past... I don't know if you have to walk past this guy's house, but he's in the area. You know he lives nearby. Yeah. You have to walk to the phone box and you've yeah. just seen him murder someone your age. Clearly they went together. This is like something out of genuine like a TV show. Do you know what I mean? This horrible decisions they're having to make. Yeah. It's like some sort of like weird thriller movie only it's real and terrible. Smith has an account that he gives the police and I don't want to like go into all of it because I've basically said like most of it. Yeah. And the other thing I want to point for crap about it is that he he says, I heard, so when he's talking about like the axe, he says, I heard the blow. It sounded horrible. Uh, Which is just such an understatement. Do you know what I mean? That's such a, an understatement. I can't even imagine. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, but how do you, how do you describe something like that? I don't think, yeah, exactly. I'm there like, is no way to. So, okay, so that was the 6th of October. Okay. Are you ready for this? The part of the section, the headline, are you ready Are you ready to cheer? Because the- I am. The I am so ready. Is arrest. Like, yes. yes. Finally. Uh-oh. Sound editor here. If you want to know what happens next, you'll have to tune into part two. Dead Cat on the Line is written and produced by Ali Drain and Sarah Caulfield. Sound editing is done by Ruth Brown. For more information, you can find us at Dead Cat Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. No cats were harmed in the making of this podcast. We even have a real live one. You can see him on our social media pages. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>